What if everything we thought we knew about prehistory was just the tip of the iceberg? Journalist Graham Hancock is on a mission to uncover the truth about a civilization far more advanced than we ever believed possible. He travels to the ends of the earth, braving treacherous jungles and diving deep into the oceans to uncover the secrets of the past. Wait, this this can't be right. This sounds a little bit pseudoscientific to me. Uh, and there's no aliens in this? Aww, alright. <laughs> we'll see what this is. Will he be able to uncover the truth before it's too late? Or will this ancient civilization remain forever buried under the sands of time? Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we usually watch and examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. But this time we're going to switch out one of these A's to Apocalypse instead. And see if these claims hold water to an archaeologist or if there are better explanations out there. I'm your host Frederick, and this is episode 30. And we're going out on a little detour again. Last time we went and uh, examined BuzzFeed's Unsolved Mysteries. And we also talked about the Bosnian pyramids in an earlier episode. But this time we're going for a little bit bigger fish here. We're going after Netflix's uh, new show, Ancient Apocalypse, hosted by Graham Hancock. And this is largely based on his books, um, Magicians of the Gods and American Before. What we're about to embark on is a breakdown in three parts, so it's a little mini-series here, but it means that we won't go into the nitty-gritty details as we tend to do with Ancient Aliens when we watch it. But I felt that people has already gone through many of these claims in such a great way that I think we should focus our effort a little bit more on the parts I believe others might have missed. And we also in the past, you know, <laughs> talked about many of these locations Hancock bring up in the show, but from the alien perspective, but it's basically the same argument, but with less um, aliens in them. We will also be guested by a couple of people that I think can bring us some uh, good insights and extra explanation to uh, this phenomenon. At first, I was contemplating to invite Graham Hancock, but then I felt that he already has a quite large platform to um, speak from. So I'm going to skip it. But Graham, I know you listen. You're a big fan. If you feel that you want to come on here, just have your people reach out to my people and we can figure something out down the line. And remember that sources, resources, and further reading suggestions are in the show notes on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com, or ancientapocalypse.net and if you have any suggestions spots any mistakes or just want to reach out our contact details are on the website and if you like the podcast feel free to leave a five-star review and if you're watching this on youtube like subscribe and hit that little notification button now when we're done with our preparation let's dig down into the episode a comet is tumbling down through the atmosphere 
but the people witnessing this doesn't know it by this name. In later tellings, they would refer to this as the serpent in the sky, the dragon, or the evil one. At 50,000 kilometers an hour, the large comet crashes into the ground. If there were some close by, they suddenly were no more. Those further away would feel the ground shake as if the earth itself trembled in fear of what was to come. Those furthest away felt only a slight shiver. But the omen in the sky had already told them something was coming. For some time everything was still, but it would change uh, quickly as the water rose. One of the greatest civilizations we had ever seen until then was promptly lost, except for a few people who managed to survive. And these people took it upon themselves to wander the earth, sharing a warning of coming danger and teaching others the lost technologies and knowledge. Now this story might be familiar to you if you watched the show Ancient Apocalypse or read any of Graham Hancock's books. But this is not actually from Graham Hancock's writings. No, this is taken from a book called Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Gravel by Ignatius Donnelly. We will get back to Donnelly later, but I'm bringing this up to show that um, the ideas presented in Ancient Apocalypse aren't really new. They've been around since at least the last century. And to contend with these ideas, we, we need to understand their origin. And to ease us into this first part of the exploration, I want to welcome our first guest. So I want to welcome Dr. Jeb Card, assistant teaching professor uh, from Miami University, who has uh, authored Spooky Archaeology, and you were the editor of Lost City Found Pyramid. I co-edited that with David Anderson. And you also were the co- or are the co-host of the podcast In Research Of. And also yeah. in the past you have been part of Archaeological Fantasies and a quite frequent guest on Monster Talk. Yes. So... Welcome. Uh, have you seen anything from Graham Hancock's uh, new documentary on Netflix? Or I watched some. I watched some of it. I wasn't terribly concerned about watching the whole thing. Luckily, it's not super long. Um, I don't want to get into it, but you're going through all the ancient aliens. I'm working <laughs> on a project that might be familiar, but uh, I read reviews of what it was about. I'm like, I've read his stuff. This is a presentation of his stuff. It's not like, oh, here's my new idea. It's, no, this is just that's not a criticism. It's just I don't need to really sit down and watch all of it. I also haven't been trying to take up. I will not try to take a part of thing I haven't watched. No, you know that that's just ethical. So when I watched, uh, I watched some of it. Yes, no, just it, parts that interested me. Parts that I, <laughs> uh, I know one of the people on screen. Uh, uh, I know from professional work, one of the people that's one of the talking heads, or uh, talking head, one of the, the guests that he talks to on it. Mm. How did you feel that he represented uh, this guest? Was it uh, fair, or did you feel that it was heavily edited? Um, I didn't, I mean, I saw some of them on. I, I didn't watch their whole, you know, again, I kind of bipped around. Yeah. Um, choices, you know? Uh, I don't think I would have gone on that show, but you know, I'm not, I'm not everyone. Yep. And I have looked at this stuff quite a bit. So I have some ideas about that. 
uh, I, well, we'll get into, we'll get into <laughs> some other things. About uh, so uh, let's go back and you've wrote for SAAA uh, magazine, yeah. an article. It was 2019, if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, John Hoops, who obviously has been in kerfuffle with, uh, Mr. Hancock and his his fans recently over this uh, Ancient Apocalypse show, he put together a, he asked people, when America before? And that was, I think, why it really made sense. Because SAA is a Society for American Archaeology. Hmm. It very much has people who do not study the Americas and certainly not North America uh, in it. And, you know, when you go to their meetings, there's stuff from all over the world. But a lot of its focus is on, one, the Americas, and two, North America, and so when his book America Before came out in 2019, which really focused more on that part of the world than he had previously, although a lot of it's about Egypt. Yeah. A lot of it's about the book of the dead when he starts talking more metaphysically. John asked a number of us, both professionals and not, to contribute pieces to the archaeological record uh, from the essay, which is, it's not their main peer-reviewed journal. That's the Latin America, American Antiquity and American Antiquity. Mm. It is... Um, the bulletin for members, which most American archaeologists, most North American and beyond uh, are members of. I actually need to renew my, um, but, uh, it's meant for them. So mm. they, but they opened it up to the whole, they wanted people to read it. Uh, but that bulletin is aimed at the archaeological profession. Uh, and so, yeah, I looked at his book America before and also his larger ideology. And I, I didn't want to write a review. That wasn't the point. I kind of wanted to talk to that audience because I'm of the opinion that a lot, that, that there's been a category error. Mm. Um, that uh, a lot of takes, and it's not just Hancock, though I think he's probably the biggest one, but a lot of takes by professionals don't actually entirely really dig enough to understand what they're critiquing. And that's not a defense. I mean, my last line of my essay is he is not a failed attempt at an archaeologist. He is a successful mythographer for a post-science age. Mm -hmm. That's, I did not think he would take that as a compliment. <laughs> I mean, there's some, you know, but it, it was more that uh, attempting to approach this from, oh, well, this date is wrong and, and but we're still talking material is, is not really actually what's going on. But what's your opinion on where Hancock comes from? Um, does he want to change he, the he, paradigm of archaeology as we do it today, or are we harking back towards the 19, early 18th, 19th well, century? Well, I don't think it's about archaeology. I don't think it's about... I mean, it is about archaeology, but it's about something bigger. Um, he He's very... And this is this is why it, it, it annoys me. Now, I will say... From, again, I haven't watched the whole show, but from summaries, reviews, people talking about it, this is not very apparent. I, I would not call it a bait and switch. It's just it's an eight-hour uh, show <laughs> or four-hour four hour show. Um, there's only so much. But this part is not as explicit in the show, but it's explicit in his writings. Mm. It's explicit in his other appearances that he is very much, and I would say this is part of a larger paranormal unified field theory, interested in consciousness interested in the soul and that's why i mentioned the egyptian book of the dead shows up he tries to make comparisons to and there are some similarities uh like there are through all different kinds of narratives but 
to uh, concepts of cosmology and how the how, you know the nature of the world and the universe in Mississippian Eastern uh, North America. Does it have to be around the Mississippi? It's just a term. Yeah. Uh, but Eastern North America indigenous thought. Af- well, usually considered after five hundred or a thousand, but probably older, almost certainly older. Ideas about beyond death transformations, ties to astronomy, and so on. He he talks about how his he finally basically says it's Atlantis. Uh, this global civilization before the Holocene was not advanced as much in physical technology as in psychical technology and and, and whatnot. So it's not just oh you know. I, I will see archaeologists go, well, we change our paradigms all the time. Like, look, we don't believe Clovis first anymore. We haven't for decades. That is true. Hmm. Those aren't the paradigms he's talking about. He's talking about, again, and not just him, not just him at all, materialist science, uh, looking at things from a physical perspective rather than also a metaphysical component. And he talks about elsewhere that uh, a part of this you know, people often like, well, he's not doing ancient aliens and he's not, but he's like, but if you pierce the veil of reality through various attempts at getting into altered consciousness, there are non-human entity teachers on hmm. the other side that probably contributed at least 50,000 years ago. And we start seeing much more human creativity to, uh, the development of our species. That's not ancient aliens in the Von Daniken sense. And I wouldn't use the word aliens as much more complex. But that's been there since at least his book Supernatural in the early 2000s. I mean, he ends the book with, I'm going to go see the fairies when he takes shrooms at Avebury. Yeah. Avebury is arguably where scientific archaeology began. So he wants to get back to a more esoteric look on science. He is one of several people. There's uh, Jeffrey uh, uh, Whitley Strieber and Jeffrey Kreipel's book, Supernatural. Mm. I haven't read his Super Humanities yet. Uh, Dean Radin has one like this that basically argued that science is a subset of larger knowledge creation, much of which would also be considered magic. I think their ideal scientist would be Isaac Newton, given that he spent just (laughs) as much, if not more time in alchemy as he did in physics and calculus. Yeah, Newton had some strange experiments going on in this, uh, I remember. But do you think we need to look a bit more towards... Helena Blavatsky and other authors to really understand and properly criticize Hancock and similar authors. Oh yeah, I, 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 and I am seeing more archaeologists who are familiar with this kind of material. With but with Blavatsky and the term theosophy, though it's still really rare. Like the number of archaeologists where I say the word theosophy, and there's just blank stares, and I'm like. <laughs> I mean, it's not what they're it's not what they're there for. No, I understand that that's not what they're there for. So I can't really criticize one particularly for Hancock would be Ignatius Donnelly. Yeah, uh, Ignatius Donnelly gives us the what we think of as Atlantis now. Like it's you know what people think of it as Atlantis is much more like his than Plato. And his two books, what well, the two books on this, he's also the guy who. <laughs> starts originating the Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare thing. Yeah. But uh, his Atlantis, the Antediluvian world, I think it's Ragnarok, uh, something of uh, fire and gravel, where he's like, look, there was a super ancient civilization (laughs) and it was destroyed 12,000 years ago by a comet. Well, that's 
other than the spiritual stuff, other than the metaphysical stuff, that is very similar to what Hancock has been doing since the 90s, but it does have that other component, which I don't believe Donnelly had, but his stuff was very enthusiastically melded in by Blavatsky and her followers mm-hmm. uh, in the philosophical movement. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, I also, it would not hurt people looking at this stuff to maybe also be familiar with Charles Fort and with Richard Shaver and Ray Palmer, but that's a larger discussion. Yeah. And, uh, and John Q. But in your chapter in Lost City Found Pyramid, yeah. uh, Steampunk yeah. Inquiry, you uh, bring up mm-hmm. that they often fall back on these um, older writings because it's in public domain and easily accessible. Do you think that affect how people look at archaeology due to the accessibility? Well, I actually think that's, I don't think that's actually the main reason. Uh, I've heard others suggest, like, oh, well, it's out there, you can use it. I don't actually think that, I mean, that doesn't hurt, but I don't think that that's the primary, and also they're not around to say, no, that's not what I mean. I think it's because it is before professionalization. Professionalization is not just a thing of archaeology or the academy, it is tied to the rise of a sort of well, a professional middle class. You really don't have the concepts of professionals before the 19th century. It's skilled people, but they often got their positions via patronage and relationships mm. versus, oh, I did a civil service exam or I went to university or whatever. Yeah, And that notion of the professional hits the academy in the 19th century. And archaeology, I mean, the very first professorship of archaeology is the Disney chair at, I want to say Cambridge in 1851, and that's classical archaeology. The first one in Egyptology is in 1890. It goes to Sir Flinders Petrie at University College London. Well, no, wait, it may not be there. I think it, anyway. But it's really in the 20th century. Uh, it, the, the professionalization process is largely done by about 1950, 60, depending on what part of the world you're talking mm-hmm. about. But that's the, you need credentials. You need to be part of an institution. There are standards. You can't be the hero saying what you want. Yeah. I think that's why they like the stuff before that because it has that it has that message it has that importance it is not you know peer review and I, I honestly think the rise of somebody like Eric Von Danica in the 1960s it is very interesting that that is around the same time that there are developments in archaeology where publication is actually much more aimed at tenure mm. and going further in a professional institution with the growth of the universities uh, as state-funded things. Uh, the fact that, you know, I like to say, I ask archaeologists, who's the most fa- who's the most influential uh, student of archaeology or archaeology writer uh, of the 1960s? And they all say, if they're Americans, oh, Louis Binford, because yeah. he's like the sort of big <laughs> figurehead of the new archaeology procession. I'm like, no, it's Eric Mondanica. Even though I don't believe that he's right on anything, but he's influenced far more minds. Yeah, he's and so no, I think that's why that stuff is useful because it's and also they were very happy to talk about these kinds of issues. There had not been that divide with, oh, we're getting rid of Margaret Murray and the witches, or we're getting rid of using psychic vibrations to find Glastonbury and and yeah. so on. They weren't. So it, it's it's more trying to 
reject and repeal the development of professional science. And the same thing is true in things like cryptozoology. You look at parapsychology. Yes, are they doing their little experiments with machines? But they're constantly citing stuff from the 19th century. Mm. And if we try to look a bit forward, uh, what can, uh, well, academics, archaeologists, and others who engage in these tactics yeah. better, um, you know, engage with the pseudoscience? You bring up, for example, two examples how wow. mainstream science engaged and kind of won in your chapter. Uh, what yeah. is it? The crystal skull mm-hmm. and Bigfoot? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the the Bigfoot one was going on at the time with a lot of genetics, and I have thoughts about that because it's only taken somewhat in the community because now they're like, well, Denise of DNA, and it's like, okay. The Crystal Skull thing, obviously there are still people who are all about it, but the fact that there was solid research, and especially physical research, as much as I hate to say, I think, his, I think on these topics, history is very much one of the best ways of going forward, like looking at the history Hmm. of these concepts and all that. That said, the sort of thing in our, we love genetics, we love AI machine learning culture that often seems to have more gravitas for the larger public is DNA or scanning electron microscopy. So in the case of the crystal skulls, there's been a really, I want to just show this off. The only relation I have is that I reviewed it (laughs) Not peer-reviewed it, but book-reviewed it. This is a fantastic book, and I believe it is either out or coming out in um, paperback. Uh, the Man Who Invented uh, Aztec Crystal Skulls is about Eugene. It is basically a biography of Eugene Boban. It is by Jay McLaren Walsh and Brett Topping. They solve the mystery. Oh, They are like, this is where they came from. Yeah. This was their inspiration. It is a really important book if you're interested in these sorts of topics. Yeah, that's a great book recommendation right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that kind of study, like actually looking at these things. Before I will let you go to work, <laughs> we yeah. have brought up, and Hancock talks about this too, Kukulkan uh, and Quetzalcoatl as being white. And I know that you uh-huh. are specialized in. I have studied both colonial, like 16th century colonial Spanish, which mostly wasn't Spanish, it was indigenous people, archaeology in Mesoamerica, as well as classic Maya archaeology and uh i've contributed in in things with epigraphy which is inscriptions Hmm. uh working on some of the few inscriptions in el salvador that sort of thing because it's on the edge of that world that topic it is complicated it's not complicated like well it's part it's like no no it's complicated only because you got to dig into the history but no that seems to largely be a creation of the spaniards from the spanish colonial and there are people who have written more on this there's actually a pretty good discussion of this. It's a good website. I shouldn't say there's actually, there's a good discussion. There's a really cool website that's meant for public consumption, but is detailed called Mexico Lore. Okay. I think it's just M-E-X-I-C-O-L-O-R-E. And I think it's .co.uk. I know they're based out of the UK. Mm-hmm. It has got a lot. I just was listening to their new podcast talking about Aztec music. And the first one's on the Aztec death whistle thing, <laughs> which is fascinating. Mine is at work, otherwise I'd blow it and blow out your speakers, but um, (laughs) terrifying. But they have a really solid, I actually pulled it up for something else the other day, uh, discussion of this. But yeah, that's that's not a thing. Yeah, I mean, you can find people who say it's a thing, but it's it's not. And also the whole bearded business, they're like, oh, they, yeah, there are totally people in the Americas that, you know, have beards and there Mm. are 
whether they're today or depictions of them. Yeah, it's not as common. You know, I'll, I'll will agree with that, but it's not a thing. All right. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I will put some links okay. to your podcast and your books. Recommend to buy them all. Thank you. Uh, in the show notes. Anything else you want to add before we... Uh... Um, I just would say my message is don't go with your preconceptions. I Again, I am going through some material right now that is often spoken about. I'm like, what you think this is about is not what it's about. And, and you know, as I say at the end of Spooky, I'm like, my job is literally to, you know, turn over rocks and dig into things and uncover formerly secret things, hidden things. We should absolutely be doing the same thing with these topics instead of just going with what our first, like, well, this is how things are. It's like, well, but maybe you should dig. If yeah. you want to engage... You know, there's that that term engage. That term in English can be, I have decided to marry a person. It can be, we're going to have friend relations. There's also engaging the enemy. It can mean a number of things. Mm. And if you don't know who that person or that corporation or that army is in any of those cases, it's probably not going to go well. You probably need to know who you are engaging with. Links to Jeb's books, Spooky Archaeology, and Lost City Found Pyramid will be found in this episode's show note. And of course, you should go and listen to his podcast, In Research Of, hosted with Blake Smith, who has been a guest on the show previously. Now, to paraphrase Dr. Ken Fader, according to alternative historians um, or alternative history theorists, archaeologists and historians constantly seem to lose civilizations. And I would argue that losing track of an abandoned site might be a bit natural. But what differentiates a lost real site from a made-up lost site is that we usually find the real ones sooner or later. And we also uncover them when, where we expect them to kind of be. Take, for example, the most known example, maybe, Troy. Now, Henry Schliemann is attributed as the discoverer, and he did that in 1873. But people have suggested the site of Hisrali since at least 1822. And to be honest, Schliemann probably made the site a big disservice by excavating it by himself. It's been discovered that he has faked quite a lot of artifacts. For example, Priam's treasure and a lead figurine that had a swastika scratched into it. Another place that was lost and found is the town or little village of Trusso, described by Wolfdam. Now compare this to more fabled civilization like Lemuria, Mu, and well, Atlantis, or El Dorado, or the lost city of C, or any other location that's been lost. Uh, the mother of these are, of course, the city and story of Atlantis, originating as a rhetorical device by Plato. While this fabled city only gets a smaller role in Ancient Apocalypse. I think he mentioned it like 17 times throughout the show. Hancock's idea would not be much without Atlantis, to be honest. And to truly understand the hypothesis of Graham, we need to understand Atlantis and what this legend birthed, in a sense. And this examination that we're starting on is just one of very, very many. The camp wrote uh, back in 1950 that thousands of articles have been written ranging in tone from the soberest science to the wildest fantasy. And the amount has not become less since he wrote this book 
that was really released in 1970s, still true back then. Now, Platon was born in 429 or 428 BCE. This date isn't too important, but it means that he was about 18 or 19 when he first became a student with Socrates. While Socrates never really bothered to write something down that survived to our day, he was fortunate enough to have quite ambitious pupils like Plato and other famous philosophers. And as we know, Plato, just as Cher and Prince, went by his mononym for most of the time and was a star in his time. I have no idea why I went with Cher and (laughs) Prince there, but uh, I am younger than you might think. Now, Plato is also known for using dialogues to teach but they were never intended to be taken as records of real conversation. These dialogues usually include his old teacher and his friends and other real people, but they were intended as literary devices to represent Plato's ideas. Plato described Atlantis in two works, Timaeus and Critias, which was left unfinished. Timaeus was, of course, completed. But there would also have been a third book called uh, Hermocrates. Now, these books were to elaborate on Platon's The Republic. They even took place the night after the discussion. And this was in 421 BCE. So that means that Plato was about eight years old at the time when this took place. So he probably wasn't in participant. And the books was written in 355 BCE, putting Plato's in his 70s. And if we read Timaeus, we learn that Socrates wants to continue discussing the perfect society. While we today might see Socrates' ideal society as rather fascist, (laughs) nonetheless, he gives his pupils the task of describing an ideal society and how it would perform against Athens. Hermocrates proceeds to throw Critias under the bus by volunteering him to Socrates most presumably steaming with fury and planning his revenge on Hermocles, Critias um, go on and starts to tell a story to, uh, to Socrates and the gathered people that was told to him by his grandfather, he claimed at least. Now the grandfather has first conveyed this story during a festival called Apaturia, during which young lads would uh, could win prizes for their literary inventions. So everybody told a story during this festival. But it was not Critias the Older, which, of course, <laughs> Critias' grandfather was also known Critias. No, uh, it was told to Critias' grandfather by Ropides. Of course, this is not the original source for the Atlantis story either. No, that was a Greek sage named Solon who in turn had heard about this from an Egyptian priest in 590 BCE. And if we plot out all these people involved in this story, it means that Plato is retelling a 235-year-old fictional story at this point. Now, if we start to read the book of Timaeus, we will uh, learn that it contains an introduction to Atlantis. And as we learned in a previous episode, it's located outside the Strait of Gibraltar or outside the Pillar of Hercules. And the Egyptian priest stresses that the Atlanteans made an unprovoked attack against Europe and Asia. 
And if we read a book, we see that uh, Critias is trying his best to paint the Atlanteans as uh, quite evil enemies to uh, Athens. The floor is left to Timaeus, who will then go on and speak a little bit uh, about the universe origin and the origin of everything. Now, if we head over to uh, Critias' books, we learn that um, he first chit-chats about how ancient Athens and how it was in there 9,000 years before. And just by coincidence, Athens back then matched on the letter Plato's idea of a perfect republic, so to say. Isn't it a bit mysterious that it just happens to line up? We, we then learned that the uh, decadent Atlanteans started as a noble people with um, a godly pedigree, but uh, they would turn corrupt as age went on. So the base actually that Zeus decided that something needs to be done and he is going to teach them Atlanteans a serious lesson. And just as Zeus is about to regate his plan to his um, collected gods, the story just ends mid-sentence. Plato seems to have abandoned it there and never went back to finish it. And unfortunately, he would go on and die just a few years later. Luckily, or maybe unluckily for us, we learned in Timaeus that Atlantis would um, go under in a large uh, cataclysm that would end also ancient Athens. Now, I challenge you to find another ancient source that also mentioned Atlantis or a similar myth. So far, none have really been able to locate this. And (laughs) trust me, there are several who has made pretty good attempts there. Isn't this a little bit strange? Sure, we haven't found every little bit and piece of the ancient literature. But if you combine the sources from Egypt, from Babylon, from Sumer, from Phoenicians, we don't see a single mention of either Atlantis or another story similar to it, really. And Herodotus lived only a century before Plato, and he never mentioned Atlantis or a story similar to this. And, you know, he's the father of history or father of life. He was known to, you know, write about stuff that maybe wasn't really entirely true. But we don't see any mention in other historians' work that specifically write about the military conquest and the stride of the Athenians' military power. Isn't it a little bit strange that they leave out this Athenian victory over this great evil empire? I feel so, but um, very well. We, uh, well, most likely it's because they knew that Plato wasn't, you know, describing real history. He was using this as an allegory, so to say. And when we look at this all together, it becomes clear that Greeks and others that came after Plato saw this as a fictional invention by Plato as it was intended. Plato put the story in what to the Greek was a mysterious ancient times, just as author today do similar things. Saying Atlantis is real is like claiming Middle Earth is real and that the Shire was located in Flen in Sweden. You might object and say that Critias explained that the story is true. Well, still Tolkien does similar thing. If we look in the Fellowship of the Ring, in the prologue, we learn that this book is largely concerned with hobbits. And from its pager, a reader may discover much of their character and a little bit of their history. Does it mean that 
hobbits were real, that Tolkien had access to real historic uh, texts about hobbits. Probably not. And sometimes author claim the story is real to, you know, make it more interesting for the reader. And for century, the story about Atlantis was just that, a story. But it would not stay like that forever because sometimes stories has other plans. Now, before we get deeper into what Atlantis has to do with everything and we have a more in-depth discussion of the topics we brought up with Yeb Card, I need to explain the base of some of the parts of Hancock's argument here. We need to talk about hyperdiffusion. What is hyperdiffusion and what makes it more excited than normal diffusion? When archaeologists gab about diffusion theory, we usually mean this in the sense that we trace how and where artifacts unfurl. Diffusion is not just used in archaeology, but also in history, in geography, and even economy. And we can observe how a type of object or information spreads from a culture to another. And we know that our ancestors traveled far and wide and uh, encountered different uh, people on their journeys, which led to imitation and, most importantly, trade. And we often see single trait diffusion, that a smaller item is traded or gifted between culture. This does not mean that the different cultures even had to be in contact with each other. Many cases, artifacts passes through several cultures and people before the travel is over, and we find it in a cultural layer when we excavate a site. Note that this process rarely is just one-sided. Trade went, you know, two ways. So different items went back and forth between the civilization, and we also see a lot of imitations in, you know, an area where maybe the resources that used to create this item is uh, scarce so for example in late neolithic scandinavia the import of copper was relatively late in our history but the concept of these uh, very beautiful daggers was known and people wanted it so they started to make copper dagger imitation from flint that was you know available to the people in scandinavia the replicas was so detailed that you can see the little stitching where the leather on the handle goes. And archaeologists can sometimes talk about the complex diffusion. And this is when a culture imprints itself on another culture. And these cases are quite rare and far in between. It's usually the result of either war or colonization. And if we turn the volume up to 11, we get hyper diffusion. That's that all cultures and techniques can be traced to a single origin. For example, V. Perry and Smith argued that ancient Egypt was the penultimate source of all civilization, technology, building, everything came from Egypt. Hyperdiffusion was also used in a new work trying to explain how this what was you know, saw by the people back then as primitive people could build these marvelous monuments. And this view is very colonial in a sense and has been used to defend scientific racism and, you know, include a lot of white race mythologies, for example. Now, diffusion is one of these 19th century ideas that's been replaced by a post-processual argument 
Gordon Child and others were using diffusion mechanisms, but uh, started to implement a more Marxist approach to them. The focus became more how diffusion worked in an economy environment. But it wasn't until 1970 and the publication of Colin Renfrew's book, uh, Before Civilization, we started to see a shift towards a post-processual approach. Renfrew used, for example, radiant carbon dating to show that megalithic structures in Europe were independently invented in different areas and different times, while diffusion was used before to you know, explain the rise of megalithic structures in Europe. It um, was, with Renfrew's study, discarded mostly. It still has its place within archaeology today on smaller concepts, ceramics and uh, ideas, but it's more on a local with a certain area. For example, within Sweden, we can look at how ceramic spreads between different sites, but um, it doesn't really work on larger concepts that's uh, pyramids, for example. And we have started to learn and maybe accept that humans are a bit more complex and imagining that we might give ourselves credit for sometimes. Now, hyperdiffusion has found itself a new home within the alternative history sphere. And we see this frequently in ancient aliens. The idea that things resemble each other is due to alien invention or alien tools, for example. But note that hyperdiffusion carries a darker past that neither von Däniken or Graham Hancock really deals with when applying the idea of hyperdiffusion on their hypothesis. The idea of hyperdiffusion has usually been used to you know, present a race, a nation or religion as superior to other. And you really need to first understand this and deal with this before you start to apply it in your well, literary work, basically. Now, let's get back to Atlantis, the story that didn't really want to stay a story. Almost a millennium went by with no claims towards Atlantis uh, reality. But it would change with uh, Lopez de Gomorra's account in Historia General de las Indias that was published in 1552. In it, he note, quote, But there is no reason to dispute or doubt the island of Atlantis, since the discovery and conquest of the Indies plainly demonstrate that Plato wrote about these lands. And we are no strangers to Spaniards making things up to justify or try to finance their expedition. Pedro Saramiento de Gamboa also thought Atlantis was located in the Indies, just before he in his book started to talk about how As he put it, the barbarians of Peru's blind opinion to their own origin. Now, it's not only Spanish people we should blame here. Other nations also contributed to these ideas, like John Jocelyn, Abbé Charles Etenier Brasseur and Auguste Le Plongeon, were a few who contributed to the Atlantis myth. The two latter even translated the Madrid Codex or the Torano Codex in late 1800 getting widely different translation from each other and to what it actually says in the Madrid Codex. Remember, we did not rediscover the Mayan script uh, or yeah, rediscovered how to translate the Mayan script until 1973. Now, Abbe saw a story of Atlantis in the text while Le Plongion read that the Mayans 
originated from the ancient Egyptians. But Atlantis was on the way out in the late 19th century. But the story would not be ready to be forgotten. Let's reintroduce Ignatius Donnelly, the man we talked about in the opening, who told us a tale eerily similar to these ideas presented by Graham Hancock. Donnelly was an American who became a lieutenant governor at the remarkable young age of 28. Now, Donnelly would move on and hold political office as a radic Republican. And as for the time, he was quite uh, progressive, actually. He supported the suffragist movement, was against child labor, and was a proponent of, well, somewhat racial justice, at least. Even if the later part was hugely colored by racist bigotry, and is maybe best shown in his later novel, Dr. Hudjets, which deals with, um, well, rather brutal situation for formerly enslaved people. While he discussed this in a rather progressive manner, we see how racial science of the time shines through and he talks that uh, people of color can't learn when they get older due to the thickness of their skulls and rather horrific ideas that was uh, quite common back then. And these racist ideas echoed through the novel and we even see this in Atlantis, the antediluvian world. White people in the Atlantis books is portrayed as the rightful ruling class of Atlantis. While all color exists in this Atlantean place where barbarians first became civilized. And the hyperdiffusion in Donnelly's work, Atlantis, the antediluvian world, is um, nothing the author is really trying to conceive here. At the book's opening, we get 13 points that he will try to prove in the book. And number three is that all civilization we know is originating from Atlantis. Later, he expands and repeats that all cultures must have been derived from some common source. Now, while Donnelly might have been progressive for his time, he's still far from our current ideas. And to explain the complex buildings of Mayans and Native American, he insisted that a race of pure blood lived there before well, Europeans started to come to the New World. The base of this claim isn't new or just thought by Ignatius Donnelly. For example, we, as we talked about in a previous episode, the president of the Chicago Academy of Science, J.W. Foster, spoke in similar terms and ideas. And even if this racist idea was about to be starting to be thrown out, it was an still is, to some extent, a long road to walk down there. Now, Cyrus Thomas' careful investigation and debunking on, of the Mount Builder myth would not be released for another 12 years. Now, Donnelly's um, evidence for diffusion range far and wide, and nothing is too big or too small to include. One part he claims to be evidence is that Atlantis had art. And so though everybody else, all other culture has art. While it's a true statement, it does not really account for the differences in between the art in different cultures. If the origin of the art were a single source, wouldn't it be more similar? 
and not show signs of evolution and adaptions. If we look at Mayan, Greek, Egyptians, or Indian art, we, we can clearly distinguish between them. Even if we look at petroglyphs, they look really different and was used in, with different methods between different cultures and times, except for you know art being made with tools and being pretty to look at. It's not that much to point it to a single source of origin. Now, another point Donnelly brings up in the book is that the new and old world both had bronze, but that's... Professor Ken Fader points out uh, he does not really account for the diverse ingredients in the alloy. In comparison, old world bronze is made with copper and thin, while new world bronze is made with combining copper and arsenic. There it is again a clear indication that these technologies evolved separately. Same with agriculture, while the concept can be found across the globe, the technology and the approach to it differs widely between the different cultures and regions. For example, in Europe, it's heavily dominated by wheat and barley. In It's grown in separate fields. But if we look at Mesoamerica, for example, we have maize, beans and squash that's grown in a sort of triad together in the same field. And things does not get better in the sequel or semi-sequel Ragnarök where Donnelly argues that a meteoric impact caused the continental drift of Earth. And the evidence for this, according to the book's narrative, is um, preserved within our mythology, shared through generation as a warning. If it happened once, it can happen again. And again, you recognize this narrative if you have seen the, the show Ancient Apocalypse or Red Graham's works. And Donnelly is, uh, in the Atlantis books, relying heavily on the flood myth or deluge myth, if you want to be fancy. You've probably heard you know, the idea that flood myth across the world is eerily similar, and you can find it in every culture across the world, basically. And Hancock also spread this idea, but is it any truth to this? Now, if we look into, for example, Sir James G. Fraser's extensive compilations of flood myth in the book uh, The Great Flood, we quickly realize that that's not the case. They differ widely and there's little they really have in common when we start to examine them properly through the uh, eyes of just <laughs> basically reading them. But um, it's like uh, you know saying that the Egyptian pyramid and the Mesoamerican pyramids are identical. And in Donnelly's later book, Ragnarok, he focused more on the end of time myth, you know, Ragnarok, the apocalypse, and that they all are the same in a sense. And that's why we get the comet hitting the earth and the warning. So again, we see a re repetition of Graham's claims in a lot earlier work of literature. Now, when I doubt that Ignatius Donnelly would uh, describe himself as an archaeologist or an historian, his approach is more of a lawyer than a scientist. As Yeb Card mentioned in his article, America Before, we should not view Hancock as an archaeologist, but a mythicist. Even Graham Hancock agreed with Card in his response to the special edition of SAA magazine that covered his book. So approaching Hancock as a person who wants to be an historian or archaeologist is to miss Graham's goal altogether. 
But to truly understand Graham's uh, idea of what a paradigm shift uh, would mean, as you have mentioned, we, we need to look a little bit more on his esoteric inspiration. So the last piece of the puzzle to understand Hancock's uh, sources and paradigm shifts can be found in the books on esotericism, on theosophy, on anthrosophy. And these connections are familiar to us. We can see them among the ancient astronaut proponents too. Jeb Card mentioned that ancient aliens people have shifted towards a more perennial philosophy. And I kind of disagree with this statement, at least for many of the more prominent names. What comes to mind is, for example, maybe Philip Coppens and Robert Scott uh, putting this more esoteric approach to the ideas. But um, it's more than perfectly visible, on the other hand, in Graham Hancock's writings. Now, I would argue that Helena Blavatsky and Rudolf Steiner are somewhat a foundation on how Graham approached these mythical stories. Within Theosophy, you collect all myths and put them in a barrel, and the ones with the most similarities are supposed to be taken as literal accounts. At the end of the day, it sounds like diffusion with maybe some more magical steps involved <laughs> just because something is similar it doesn't really affect the truthfulness of the um, statement to be honest it might have helped if Blavatsky had put, added some more criteria on how to difference between true accounts but yeah she never really did that to be honest now one core thought in theosophy is that all philosophy and religion originate from one source Does it again sound a little bit familiar? Now, here's a quote. No one can study ancient philosophies seriously without perceiving that the striking similitude of conception between all. And then she goes on. During the youth of mankind, one language, one knowledge, one universal religion. Haven't we seen this before? Now, Blavatsky also covered Atlantis in her writings. Since... She puts the origin of the fourth root race in there. In her writing, she, she had this concept called root races. And she isn't really talking about human races, maybe luckily for us. For the most part, it is about esoteric proto-humans. And the first version of this um, root race is more or less basic energy. And as it evolved, we come to the fourth race that would become humans, and we originated in Atlantis. The third race that was before us was also more flesh and blood, and they also laid eggs. So we evolved above the eggs at least. Uh, But we also had psychic powers in the beginning, but this has faded for most of us. But Helena, of course, believed that some people do have the psychic power. But there's a common idea in theophysy that we can somewhat communicate with a you know esoteric being a spirit or you know a global universal sentience and hancock speaks about this too we see for example this in his approach to aliens now he don't believe that ancient aliens came here and built the pyramids no but they are here on earth in a sense of a higher form that there's a consciousness connection among people who have been abducted or had an encounter of the third kind. 
So they're here in a more magical sense, esoteric sense. But we also see the ideas of Rudolf Steiner in Hancock's writings. But um, not so much in the Ancient Apocalypse series, but it's more apparent if we go and read the 2006 book Supernatural, not connected to the TV show, which was re-released with a new title, Visionary, last year. And while Steiner was influenced by theosophy, he tried to have a more scientific approach to these ideas. We also have the notion of sub-race, but Steiner also incorporated more racist, nationalist, and anti-Semitic ideas from his time and also was highly influential in the Nazi movement and their approach to race and uh, race theory and race sciences. But uh, Steiner talks a lot about science and how to access the spiritual world from a predominant scientific approach. We should not forget Edgar Cayce and his influence on Hancock's work. Casey is uh, maybe more known as the sleeping prophet. Well, the source of some jealousy because he was able to sleep on the job. And this uh, prophet is one of the original sources for the idea of uh, the much, much older Sphinx, for example. And he came to this realization through his visions. Many of them were about Atlantis. Now, Casey claimed to have lived some 700 lives in uh, this allegorical city of Atlantis. In one of his visions, he saw the survivors from Atlantis were traveling to Egypt and started their uh, civilization there again. And, for example, started to build the Hall of Record, which uh, Casey claimed would be beneath the Sphinx. And what time did this happen? Well, 10,000 BCE, of course. And we saw Casey's influence on, for example, Robert Scotch in an earlier episode. But I think it's important to note here that Casey wasn't too familiar with the original material. He was illiterate, for example, which made it quite hard for him to read Plato (laughs) from the start. But many of his ideas from Atlantis and their connections to the global consciousness stems mainly from his uh, client that took part in his faith healing sessions. And they were more often um, theophysists, so they talked about uh, Blavatsky's work with him, for example. And it is to this sphere of magic that Hankin wants to bring science. It's not really to overthrow post-processualism or even Clovis or, you know, uh, revert to diffusionism all again that Hancock is really after. No, it's to get back to the time where university was part science and part magical show. As Card put it, he wants to become Newton, kind of. He wants to have an esoteric approach to science and the myth that he talks about. And he applies theosophic and anthroposophic ideas when he examines them. The sooner that we understand he is not trying to be an historian or archaeologist, we can start to stomp out these ideas for real. I know that we want to believe that everyone wants to be an archaeologist, but we need to stop imprinting this idea on Graham Hancock. 
we need to accept that uh, we need more than material evidence if we want to understand uh, his uh, ideas and confront them properly. And I want to finish like Yeb Carr did in his article. Um, Hancock is not a failed version of an archaeologist. He's a successful mythographer in a post-science age. And I think you have a better understanding now of the origin and foundation of Hancock's ideas. And before we move on to the actual claims in the show, we should bring forth that Well, it's a documentary that, of course, used these clever editing tricks to get people to say things they didn't really say. And we see this a lot in Ancient Aliens, for example. And this is so common that experts aren't really surprised. We have reports coming that experts who agree to appear on the show have been edited out of context. For example, Katja Strahl from Heritage of Malta wrote online that she had been heavily edited and quoted out of context and ancient apocalypse and ancient aliens are not the only shows and documentary that use these clever editing tricks it's so common that there's actually a documentary about the phenomenon and to help us with some tips and tricks to spot pseudoscience and talk a little bit more about this clever editing i want to introduce our next guest on the show so i would like to welcome brian dunning to the show Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of fun to be here. Uh, you have been hosting Skeptoid for, what is it, 17 years now? Since 2006? A long time, yes. <laughs> 2006. <laughs> and released some 860 episodes in total, I think. About that. That's right, yeah. Closing <laughs> in on 900. So during all of your time about this uh, skeptic work, have you seen any sort of unified theory regarding all these strange claims that sort of you, you know, similar between them? <laughs> uh, that's, that's a really interesting question, like a unified field theory for paranormal <laughs> beliefs. <laughs> I, I haven't. I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons that, that people believe strange things. But, uh, you know, the really interesting research is in finding the the groupings and the correlations, people who believe one thing are more likely to believe in other strange things. Mm. You know, everyone tends to have their threshold and they tend to believe all the weird things below that threshold and they tend to reject the weird things above that threshold for yeah. <laughs> how far out there those things are. And everyone is somewhere on that spectrum. We all have some beliefs that aren't true. Yeah, that's very true. And you don't like the term debunking, right, as I understood from your show. Uh, why is that? It, debunking is just a very dismissive term. You know, it, it suggests that you automatically don't believe anything and you're just going to reveal what's wrong with this, with this idea or this belief system. And to me, that's, a, that's an inherently negative process. You're only out there to take people's cherished beliefs away, hmm. which is never, it's, that's never my intent. It's often part of the process when you're, when you're trying to show what's amazing and what's interesting about a strange belief and whatever it is, it might be how and why this belief exists, how and why it spread. Um, what were the causes of that? Um, you're, you're trying to provide a positive experience, something you can give to everyone. So everyone comes walking away saying, wow, that's really neat. I'll learn something new. And just unfortunately, along the way, you have to say, well, the popular version of the story isn't true, but here's why we know that. And here's yeah. the more interesting part of it that is true. So 
I try to find the positive aspect. Do you think people react more positively when you put it like offering them a new way to look at these things? Is it easier well, to I, get I, them to listen? I do get positive feedback for that. I do get I do get positive feedback. I get feedbacks for the kind of uh, a lot of times people will say things like, uh, you know, hey, I really respect that you didn't make fun of my belief or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, I, I try to have I, I I try to always keep in mind who is the person who is least likely to want to listen to this show? <laughs> and I try and put something in there that will make that person want to listen. That's a good approach towards this. During all of this, this episode, I think you have uh, stumbled upon uh, Graham Hancock at least five times, maybe that more sounds, <laughs> from sounds, your show notes. <laughs> sounds about and right, yeah. <laughs> do you feel yeah. that you're familiar with his work or are he just a name floating out there? Well, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not, I, I certainly don't study his work. I don't read his books. I know who he is, obviously, because he comes up in so many different, uh, in so many different episodes, um, I I tend to not spend a lot of time studying or engaging with the people who are promoting an unscientific perspective on whatever it is. Hmm. I focus my time on doing the good work, yeah, and less time on, you know, tearing down the bad work. There's also a good approach towards this and he has his new Netflix special that is very well done and when you watch it you can see that people might come away from it more interested in these ideas but from your experience do you have some tips that's easy to use at home when you're looking at documentaries or go online to spot pseudoscience or sort out fringe theories that you could share yeah you know you know the number one thing uh is when these people on television claim that the mainstream won't accept their ideas or mainstream science uh, is afraid of this uh, any kind of claims like that graham hancock is notorious for saying that kind of thing all the time <laughs> uh, in ancient aliens the giorgio tsukalos and all of those guys they also say these these same things all the time. So just yeah. watch out for anyone who's claiming to be, you know, he's being marginalized, he's being suppressed. <laughs> it, any That doesn't happen in real science. <laughs> Scientists are always trying to prove each other wrong, of course, because we're always trying to improve our theories. But um, they certainly have to engage with them and have to work with them to, in order to do that. And so it's always the people who are far outside the actual scientific field who are ever making those sort of conspiratorial claims. So watch out for those. So the people that wants to be a maverick and stand outside uh, is someone we should avoid taking face value. Definitely. Real scientists do not work in isolation from other real scientists. They have to work very closely with them. And I've seen you mention that we need to have a high bar for the standard of evidence. Do you wish to elaborate a little bit on what a high bar is and how you can look for that in your day-to-day -day life? Hard to, hard to look for in your day-to-day -day life, but what, <laughs> what, what that basically talks about, um, uh, just, to, just to pick an example, let's say these uh, TV shows that uh, promote particular UFO stories. And these UFO stories are supported by very poor evidence which is basically verbal anecdotes people who tell you what they what what happened hmm. and a lot of times these stories will grow and change over time the one out of the uk called the rendlesham forest ufo 
is a perfect example of a story that's grown enormously <laughs> since um, since it first came out. You know, initially there was a police report that says nothing interesting happened into the story. Yeah. And then over the years, <laughs> over these different TV shows coming out, they added more and more fictional elements. One guy said he, you know, found a UFO in the forest and looked at it. I mean, there's all of these story elements that get added. They're purely fictional. Hmm. And they are supported by no evidence at all. So if you're accepting evidence that's based purely on people's verbal accounts, um, that is a very low bar for the standard of evidence. We know that that kind of evidence leads to false conclusions. So you just have to have, if all of the relevant experts in a field or most of them are, are generally publishing papers about a topic and agreeing with a topic, that's a pretty good standard for evidence. You won't find any scientific papers being written finding that any UFO stories are true. Yeah. Um, or, pardon me, I misspoke. Finding that <laughs> aliens are actively visiting the Earth because we don't have any good evidence of that. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence, which is all bad evidence. And you, you know the old saying, um, uh, the plural of anecdote is not evidence. I like to say you can stack cow pies as high as you want. They won't turn into a bar of gold. Yeah, the, that's true. But I, when you're starting to think about verbal evidence, how do you feel about the um, AI-generated images that are starting to come in? Can they become a problem when we want to explore different stories and claims? Or do you feel that they will be easy to sort out from real uh, photos. That's a that's a good question, and I I don't have a crystal ball on how that's going to work out any more than anyone else does. Uh, I, I I don't think that they're likely to be a problem in the sciences. Uh, it's not like we're going to have fake evidence created. You know, <laughs> evidence is created under controlled circumstances, mm. and controlled circumstances means AI generated comments doesn't content doesn't make it through. So I'm not too worried about it from the field of science, but from the field of, you know, pop culture and even news, yeah, yeah I expect there's going to be some issues and we'll probably see some high profile cases of that. It's going to be in interesting to watch for sure. And last year we saw the release of Science Friction, a full length documentary produced by you. Would you yeah. mind telling us a little bit about it and how it came to be? Science Friction is a documentary about scientists who have been deceptively edited by these TV shows. You know, the TV shows always want a scientist to come on and say, yes, uh, scientists do think that aliens built the pyramids. Well, no real scientists are going to say that, so they get real scientists and they edit their words. In some cases, literally cutting apart sentences and rearranging the words. And uh, that is a terrible, terrible practice. And so we made this film calling out the practice. We had about 20 people in the movie to whom this has happened or who can speak intelligently about cases. Um, and I'll tell you, we had many, many more people that we either interviewed or spoke with and who elected not to not to appear in the film. Mm. And that's really interesting. And the reason was they just didn't want to burn their bridges with these TV shows. <laughs> like, and, and, you know, on the one hand, I'm tempted to ask them, so you're trying to preserve a relationship with someone who is deceptively <laughs> editing you. And, you know, the fact is these are these are scientists who usually work in obscurity. They're not yeah. going to get a lot of publicity. Being on TV show is likely to be the highlight of their career. So I, I, I don't argue with them. But 
uh, it is a it is a real problem, and it's part of why people tend to believe the things that are on these terrible TV shows. Do you think there's a way to participate in these shows, uh, type of shows, and still come out on top while participating in them? Well, yes and no. I mean, you could be very careful about what you say. These shows all give you a release form um, that gives them the right to do anything and everything with your footage. Now, they have to have that right. They have to be able mm. to make trailers. They have to be able to provide press clippings. They have to do lots of stuff over potentially several years the film's released. They need to have those level of rights. So you do have to sign the release. And if you don't sign it, they're just simply not going to have you on the show. Yeah. So all you can do is just watch your words very, very, very carefully. You can try to get some writer on the release, like, you know, I get to approve my appearance in the final show. But if you do that, they're just simply not going to use you. They're going to move on to the next person. Hmm. So it's a difficult problem. It's a difficult problem indeed. And is there any advice that you would give to expert uh, that's approached by these type of filmmakers and shows when they try well, to decide, you know, if they should participate or not? Research them, research who they are, research what the show is, find out what kind of a show it's likely to be. And that's usually pretty easy to tell. And uh, if it's if it's a questionable program, don't appear in it. Yeah. Just wait until a better show comes along. Um, that's really the best advice I can I can give, which is most of the time, don't do it at all. That actually sounds very reasonable. Uh, but it's a good documentary, and I recommend highly to see it. I enjoyed it a lot back when I saw it on release. And uh, I also encountered talk with a few that's been on Ancient Aliens. Uh, Sarah Seeger, for example, who also mentioned you point out that even if you choose your words carefully, they will find a way to put it in a different context uh, sooner or later. But uh, sure will. <laughs> to come back, Hancock, there's been a lot of rubble uh, or roughing in uh, the, at least archaeologist who's recently discovered this pseudo-archaeological sphere. And is there, should we debate pseudoscientists in, you know, the traditional debate type of uh, arena, you know, one versus one talking on stage? Do you have any insights on that type of uh, approach? Yes, I do. This is a point that I've been making for a long time. Uh, I think you should basically never do that. Scientists should not debate pseudoscientists. Because when you have a debate at all, you are telling the public that there is a debatable subject here, that there is something worthy of conversation, that's something that can be hashed out. And so if you've got a legitimate Egyptologist debating Graham Hancock or something, anyone who sees the poster for that is going to say, oh, there must be some of these big questions. Maybe there were an ancient Atlantis culture before the Egyptians or whatever it is that they're trying to believe. Second of all, you're always going to lose the debate. And the reason you're going to lose the debate is that you as the scientist are constrained by the facts and what's real. And so you have a very limited amount of information you can present. The person you're debating is not restrained by anything at all. He's got tons and tons of manufactured false history, and he can just continue making it up as he goes. And he's got so much false history behind him that there's no way you could be prepared to address all, all of those points. So it's very, very difficult for a scientist to win a debate against a pseudoscientist. And 
you shouldn't have it anyway. So it's, I just think it's a bad idea all around. There's also been talks about having a dialogue, for example, on Joe Rogan and similar talk shows. Is that also something we should avoid or would the discussion be like a debate? Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically the same situation. If... <laughs> If it's if it's on Joe Rogan, yeah, there there are no rules. Uh, you know, <laughs> Rogan is notorious for bringing on people who just who are complete pseudoscientists from beginning to end, and he gives them credibility because his show is popular. Now, if this is in front of Congress or something like that, well, then people are under <laughs> oath, and, and now all of a sudden the pseudoscientist has a lot less that he can say. But that's not really the the way most debates work. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of the discussions any more than, than the debates. Yeah. So you're saying that we should have this in Congress, uh, these type of debates. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it has to happen at all, then that's, those are the kind of conditions that it needs. You've got to have some accountability for people to stick yeah. to real facts. No, I don't in the want real to keep... world, there is no accountability. <laughs> I don't want to keep you too long, but uh, you also have a new project that kind of ties into this show, the UFO movie they don't want you to see. <laughs> Would you mind to expand yep. who are they and uh, why should we see it? <laughs> yes, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, so the UFO movie they don't want you to see. That's my new, my new film project. It's in post-production right now. Uh, hoping it's going to come out here in uh, Q1 of 2023. That's been the plan anyway. Um, and who is they? That's the question everyone asks. Who is it? Who is the they that they don't want you to? Well, obviously the title is kind of just a fun play on words. It's kind of you know it gets attention, and we started calling that as a, calling it that as a joke, um, and eventually it just stuck as the real title. <laughs> and when we started talking about what should we actually title it, this is still the one that got the most positive response. <laughs> so we're using. The UFO movie they don't want you to see. But interestingly, during the production of the, of the film, a good definition for they kind of kind of became apparent. And it is true that there is a segment of people out there who do not want audiences to have a science-informed opinion of the UFO phenomenon. Namely, the producers of all of these TV shows. They want people to be open to anything. And having a science informed audience is you know counter counter mm. to that goal so there is a they it's the ufo movie that the tv shows don't want you to see <laughs> <laughs> and where can people it's, go to find more about the movie do you have a web the website the website is the ufo.movie and yes, that's a real URL, which I didn't know before <laughs> before I did this. The UFO.movie. Uh, we're sending out little film clips on a weekly basis. So there's a, a little mailing list you can get on to receive those film clips. And uh, There's no spam and you can unsubscribe. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun editing it and uh, looking forward to getting the the scoring and the all of the other post-production stuff done as quickly as possible. Yeah, it sounds really amazing. And it's released, hopefully, Q1. That's the plan. The the, the, issue, the black box for that is um, the color grading, um, the companies that do the, the color processing for a film. Mm. Um, I have not been able to get on anyone's schedule yet. Everyone's very, very busy right now. So that might be the only thing. If it doesn't make it into Q1, it would be for that reason. I'm just trying to get the color scheduled as quickly as I can. All right, let's hold our thumbs that it's quick 
and the EC. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, but, I'll take that paranormal assistance. <laughs> well, thank you for your time, Brian. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a lot of fun to talk about this stuff, and you give me a chance to promote my projects, and so I really appreciate that. <laughs> You're very, very welcome. You will find links to Brian's podcast, Skeptoid, and the documentary Science Friction, and the UFO movie They Don't Want You to See in the show notes below the, this episode. Before we close out for tonight or today or whenever you watch this, I want you to know that there's a more extensive list on how to spot and identify pseudoscience on the website for this episode. Next time we will have a closer look at the claims in each episode and we will again have a couple of guests with us to help us with this. But till then, remember to leave a positive review everywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the trench. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. You can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, or suggestions, or want to write an all-cap email, you can find my contact info on the websites. You should also go to ancientaliens.net to find some more info on or and criticism on this um, Netflix show. And you find all sources and resources that I used to make this episode in the show notes where you also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about these different topics we brought up. Sandra Martellor created the intro music and our outro is made by a band called Tralsgruv who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there.